Welcome to the Art of Wet AMD, Drug Choice and the Latest Data, a mini-series from New Retina Radio. Dr. Arshad Kanani leads a roundtable discussion about modern approaches to wet AMD therapy with Drs. Christopher Fuller, Nicholas London, and Christina Wang. This is an editorially independent podcast supported by Novartis. Now, let's join the discussion. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to listening to this podcast, uh, Wet AMD, The Art of Drug Choice and the Latest Data. This is the third episode. I'm excited to have our three faculty members here, Drs. Christina Wang, uh, Nicholas London, and Chris Fuller. This is the third episode out of our four episodes. We'll review a few pipeline candidates for Wet AMD in this ep episode and also hear a case from Dr. London. If you want to hear a dis discussion on tactics of switching wet AMD patients to different drugs or a discussion of phase three data, go back and please listen to our first two episodes. Next time we'll discuss safety as it relates to the next generation of wet AMD drugs. For now, let's get into our review of pipeline candidates. Um, Dr. Nicholas London will be covering the data for Frisimab. Go ahead, Nick. Awesome, Arshad. This is the episode I'm most excited about. I think some of the drugs that we're going to get into are very exciting. And starting, I I'm, I'm feel lucky to be able to talk about the first one, Farisimab. And I think this is a really sexy molecule. So it's um, just to take a step back. So this always confuses me. So I just want to kind of go through it. I'll do it quickly. But, um, you know, we think of uh, VEGF as the big driver in crotal neovascular membranes. And, and it is, but it's not the only driver. So and taking a step back, we need to understand that activation of the TI2 receptor on endothelial cells via ANG1 helps to maintain vascular stability and limits exudation. And ANG2 actually displaces ANG1 on TI2 receptors on these endothelial cells. And this, of course, leads to vascular destabilization, neovascularization, and sensitization to VEGF-A. So getting to the drug, farisimab is a bispecific antibody with two different FAB regions that uh, independently will bind and inhibit the activity of VEGF-A and ANG2. And it's hypothesized that if ANG2 and VEGF are both simultaneously neutralized, there'll be an additive benefit with regards to efficacy and durability. And this drug has now been studied in both phase two and ongoing phase three clinical trials. Uh, the phase three trials we'll get into are Tanaya and Lucerne, which we don't have results on yet, but we do from the phase two trials. So we have Avenue. Avenue was a treatment-naive neovascular AMD study, and the primary endpoint was efficacy. This was a bit of a, a dose escalation study. It was a 36-week study with five arms, and it compared gold standard ranibizumab monthly to farisimab, one and a half milligrams monthly, six milligrams monthly, six milligrams monthly, and then every eight weeks, um, compared to ranibizumab times three, and then farisimab monthly. And the results showed that farisimab-treated eyes achieved meaningful vision gains and reductions in central retinal thickness. And this then led into the, um, the larger phase two study, Stairway. Again, treatment-naive, wet AMD patients. This was a year-long study, 52 weeks, with three arms. And they honed in on that highest dose, the six milligram dose of farisimab. It was given every 12 weeks after three monthly loading doses, compared to given every 16 weeks after three monthly loading doses, and then compared those two arms to monthly ranibizumab. The BCVA gains were similar in all three groups, Q12, Q16, 
and monthly ranibizumab, and about two-thirds of patients receiving furisumab could be extended to 16 weeks. That means that two-thirds of patients had no active disease at week 12. And these led into the ongoing studies, which, um, which we're taking part of, and probably everybody on the call here is taking part of, Tanaya and Lucerne. And again, these are treatment-naive, wet AMD patients where the primary endpoint is the best corrected visual acuity at 48 weeks. This study is currently fully enrolled and set to be complete by about 2022 with uh, interim data coming out in 2021. Thanks, Nick. I think uh, very good summary. Um, I think the exciting part here is that, you know, we are going beyond VEGFA inhibition and uh, based on preclinical and obviously phase two data, as um, you presented nicely, there's a signal of durability uh, in patients uh, treated with frisimab versus uh, monthly ranibizumab. So I think exciting, uh, you know, obviously um, we have to see how it, it performs in phase three, looking at the efficacy and safety to see if, um, if this gets FDA approval. And if it does, uh, you know, we'll see how we can implement it. So Christina, quick question for you. Um, let's say uh, you see the data that was seen in Stairway, uh, Frisimab going Q12 weeks or Q16 weeks. Uh, in, in patients, and you know, we don't have drugs that go Q16 weeks. So what kind of a patient would you consider um, uh, using this drug on when it first came out? Is it gonna be a switch patients with persistent fluid, or is it gonna be naive patients? I think for this drug, Arshad, I would be open to, to either situation, and I'll tell you why. I mean, again, we're not discussing safety yet, but again, you really have to take safety into account to make those types of decisions. And so far, as Nick shared, you know, top line safety is pretty good from what we've seen. They've seen similar rates of adverse events amongst all the arms that have been uh, tested and evaluated. So for me, I think that with furisimab, what it has going for it is that there's less of this concept of a trade-off between safety and efficacy the way there is with some of the other pipeline agents right now. You know, the patient doesn't have to undergo a big surgery. There's not a huge risk of intraocular inflammation that you don't you know, know how to predict in a, in a certain situation. We don't see all of that. And additionally, it's given in the clinic in a way that we're all very comfortable with through intravitreal injections. And so for me, of course, I think naturally the, the tendency when you have a new drug come out, just because as we've seen in real life, things can manifest outside of the trial setting. I think it's safer always to, to take a patient where there's uh, you know, someone who hasn't maybe responded as well to their current anti-VEGF therapy or hasn't been able to get beyond four or five or six weeks, those are the patients I think will naturally go to first. But I think after that, if, if we're impressed and if we see that there's not significant safety signal of any sort, then I think this will be a great one for treatment-naive patients. I'm excited for this one. I think great points, Christina. The fact that you're not disrupting our current practice and you are uh, you know, adding durability and hopefully better anatomy control. And I think we have seen the transition, right? Renibizumab monthly, then aflibersat Q8 weeks, then brolocizumab Q12 weeks, and now we are pushing the boundaries to Q16 week. And as you know, uh, KSI 301 is in trials looking at Q12, uh, Q16, and Q20. So I think we are pushing the boundaries. I think, uh, as said earlier by uh, uh, you and uh, Chris Fuller, the fact that the durability is the biggest unmet need, and I think it's good for our space to have options like Frisimab, which can go beyond our current uh, treatment options in terms of durability and hopefully 
better disease control. Chris, a quick question for you um, um, about Fresimab. I know you said that you are an early, early adapter to new agents. Um, you did that for ILEA, you did that for uh, brolocizumab. Um, so I can predict that you're gonna try using Fresimab if it's approved and has uh, reasonable efficacy or, or better efficacy than other agents in all your patients, is that correct? Uh, your powers of divination are incredible, that is correct. Uh, I, to riff off of Nicholas's introductory comments uh, and to amplify what Christina said, what's exciting about this, I think of the vitreous as kind of its primordial soup. And VEGF is obviously a huge driver of neovascularization and leakage, but there's always uh, other things. Uh, and it'd be nice if we could, you know, assay everybody's vitreous and know precisely what's playing a role in a particular patient's leakage. And so this will give us a nice tool, especially for those non-responders. So yes, I'll use it probably often and early but also in patients who have been kind of stubborn to respond to VEGF suppression. I think great points, Chris. So let's uh, move on to our next uh, topic. Uh, Chris, why don't you tell us uh, the top line um, data and how RGX314 um, is doing in terms of efficacy um, in ongoing uh, phase one to a study. But this for me is where the discussion on therapeutics really takes a flying leap into the realm of science fiction and fantasy since right about the turn of the century when PDT went the way of the dodo bird, uh, the VR research community has been keenly fixated on suppressing the aging retina's innate desire to bleed. Avastin was a revolutionary purpose, Lucentis its high-priced twin, and Ilea and Bayavu newer dogs with equivocally improved tricks, but what's next? Well, if Regenex Bio's stock price is any indication, its candidate gene therapy, RGX314, is an aspirant to the hot new thing thrown. Um, and what it is is a proprietary NAV viral vector called for its low immunogenicity, and it's used to encase and then deliver a healthy gene to target retinal cells. Transcription and translation ensue, with the end result being the most extreme retinal body modification to date. We now have cells capable of churning out their own VEGF-suppressing proteins, like a million happy little Lucentis factories. So this, for me, is a big wow with lots of potential. So the upshot of the phase 1-2A study was that RGX314 was shown to be safe. This was primarily a safety study. However, signs of efficacy were observed. Great, Chris. I think um, what you have highlighted very nicely is the fact that this is a paradigm shift uh, from how we treat patients currently. I think gene therapy is exciting. You know, the FDA approval of first gene therapy um, has really paved the way for making a biofactory in your eye. This is a different approach. You are introducing a gene that is usually not there uh, using a subretinal procedure. And obviously this is surgical delivery, but uh, you know, ongoing trials will also look at suprachoroidal delivery and efficacy. And I think these previously treated patients have done well in the trial, as you said, and safety has been reasonable. We're gonna address that in our last episode. So Nick, a uh, quick question for you. You know, you're surgically heavy. How hard is this uh, sub-retinal uh, uh, procedure? And I know you have been part of the trial or uh, have been trained on it. So uh, is this something all retina specialists can do or this requires specific training? Is it reserved for academic centers? Thanks, Arshad. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to me how not difficult the procedure is. Um, when we were trained for the study, we were trained on pig eyes in a wet lab here in San Diego, UC San Diego. And, um, you know, I've done subretinal blebs. I've usually done them in areas of hemorrhage and, and it's not that challenging, right? We, we can all sort of do that. You just poke a, a small cannula into the area of hemorrhage. 
but you're doing these cases in flat retina, which to me was a, a little bit of a mental roadblock at, at least. But, um, you know, when you do it, you, it's surprisingly simple. You start the infusion, you've got the, uh, everything set up where you just hit the foot pedal and it starts the infusion. And then you just touch the cannula to the surface of the retina and push just slightly, making sure that you're perpendicular and a subretinal bleb develops. Uh, and I did this numerous times in, in a couple different wet labs and had no problems each time. I have yet to do it in a, in a patient, uh, so we'll see. Um, that, that will be ongoing. We're part of the trial and we'll see how that goes. But I don't expect it to be an overly challenging thing uh, like fixing a diabetic retinal detachment. I think uh, you make some uh, great points, Nick. Um, I've been involved with the trial too, and I agree with you. I think, uh, um, uh, you know, correct training and then knowing what you're doing in terms of attached retina versus injecting in a area of hemorrhage or you have to be super careful so you don't inject sub RPE. Um, so I think you need to really look for signs uh, to make sure that you're right um, you know, subretinal and not um, sub RP. And I know, Christina, you have done uh, many of these subretinal procedures uh, for Luxterna. Um, can you summarize quickly your, your learning about uh, how this surgery is done? Because it's, it is essentially a similar surgery here. You're making a bleb directly with uh, IP and not making a bleb. Obviously, techniques can change over time. But for right now, it seems pretty similar to Luxterna. Well, I'm not as superior of a surgeon as Nick is, but uh, <laughs> I agree with what he said. I think, you know, I wouldn't say it's an easy procedure. I, I, I don't think I would characterize it as that. I think it does take training because it is Nick, different. You know, it's easy for Nick, but uh, <laughs> our heart will beat 100 miles an hour for the That's first That's why I admitted that first, that I'm not the same level of surgeon he is, you know, because, you know, it. In all seriousness, I do think it's something that can be uh, learned quickly. I think there is a learning curve to it, as is to any surgery. But I do think it's something that the general, you know, retina surgeon in the community will be able to do. However, because it is a little bit high stakes in the sense that you're putting this medication into a potential space, as Nick already referred to, and the fact that these drugs are, we don't know how much they're going to be priced for the AMD side, but for Luxterna, I mean, we're talking about a $425,000 drug. So you, you, there's some high stakes that are at risk. And so you do want to make sure that the person who is injecting it is trained in sort of the standard way uh, that we all are. So we, we had a very similar situation. We met in Philadelphia uh, at the Sparks spark therapeutics headquarters and we did this on rabbit eyes and um you know it's never quite the same as when you do it for the first time but again it is uh i think i would say it's not as hard as you may imagine uh but again going through that training process i think is going to be important when they do hopefully eventually launch the drug i think those are great points christina i think it's something that most of us can do, I think, just need to learn the right technique and training. And I think this should be something adapting uh, in our practice. But obviously, it's a surgical procedure. We have to look at risk and benefits. But very exciting data. And, um, and obviously, supracroidal trial, which is in clinic, if that pans out, I think you can offer this option to a lot of um, uh, patients in clinic. So talking about in-clinic option, Christina, why don't you quickly update us on the top-line data from uh, ADVM 022 and just review for us how it works and the ongoing results from the ongoing optic study. 
Yeah. So like you, Arshad, I'm super excited about gene therapy because it's working at a whole new realm. We're talking about a potentially single dose treatment that can carry somebody for a very long time with minimal or no supplemental therapy. So it's very exciting. There's two leading candidates in the pipeline. Chris just talked about one from Regenix Bio. I'm going to talk the, about the other one, ADVM022 from Advirum. This is an intravitreal gene therapy. I think that's the biggest difference is that you can t do this in the office, which is, uh, I think, a huge advantage. It's for wet AMD, and it really leverages the concept of transforming the eye into a biofactory. So instead of this concept, what, which is what we follow now, where we extrinsically inject anti-VEGF over and over in bolus dosing to our patients, this is something where you'd inject it once and then it would transform the eye such that it can produce its own form of what essentially is a flivercept. What's unique about ADVM022 is that it utilizes a viral vector capsid. That's what I call a, a designer capsid. It's a variant of the adeno-associated virus uh, number two, and it houses a transgene that's driven by a ubiquitous CMV promoter that encodes for a flivercept. And in animal models, there's been stable protein expression of this aflivercept for up to 30 months. So we know it can have that longevity, which is what we're seeking. It's been evaluated in an ongoing phase one trial called the OPTIC trial. I know you're very heavily involved with this. This study is a two-year study evaluating ADVM022 in patients with wet AMD who previously have been treated with anti-VEGF. And they divided them up into four cohorts. And this was kind of an interesting setup they had in terms of trial design. It's not the classic dose escalating uh, uh, setup, but essentially they had cohorts one and four, which were the higher dose cohorts. Those patients received six times 10 to the 11 vector genomes per eye. And then cohorts two and three are the lower dose cohorts. They received two times 10 to the 11th vector genomes per eye. So only a third of the dose of the higher dose. Patients get a single injection of ADVM022, and then they are monitored and only rescued if there was a loss of 10 or more letters, an increase of 75 microns or more on central subfield thickness, or presence of hemorrhage. And the primary outcome they're looking at is safety and efficacy at 24 and 52 weeks. So I'll just take you briefly through the cohorts that we have data for, which are the first three. Cohort one, that's the higher dose cohort, stable vision, favorable anatomic responses, and all six patients, 100% of patients have remained rescue free now for 72 weeks. Cohort two, this is a lower dose cohort, stable vision, again, favorable anatomic responses, half those patients have remained rescue free. Cohort three had a really impressive response. They had four letter gains on average, a decrease of almost 120 microns of central subfield thickness at 36 weeks, which is the median follow-up we have so far at the last data cut that I was privy to. And seven out of nine patients are rescue free. So I would say the most impressive results, I mean, we're still waiting on cohort four, but the most impressive result is that visual acuity in general was stabilized, anatomic responses were maintained while significantly reducing the treatment burden following just a single intravitreal injection. And these are patients that needed a lot of treatment beforehand. They needed over nine injections on average in the, in the course of that one year prior to ADVM022. So imagine, especially in the high dose cohort, cohort one, six out of six patients rescue free. And in the low dose even, 10 out of 15 patients for which we have data so far are rescue free. So I'm really excited to see the readout from cohort four, uh, which is gonna again be high dose and we're gonna round out this trial and, and see where it goes. And in general, this seems to be well tolerated and we're gonna discuss some of the safety issues in the next session, but um, no drug or treatment related serious adverse events. Low-grade inflammation is something that was commonly observed.
I think uh, excellent summary, Christina. I think the key here is the fact that in these heavily pretreated patients, you are able to control anatomy and BCVA um, and you have 15 month data in cohort one. So pretty impressive in terms of what this can do. I think this can be disruptive, uh, just like RGX314, we're really shifting the paradigm in terms of how we treat our patients. Obviously, uh, you know, there's no free lunch. There's some inflammation that uh, gets uh, managed with uh, topical drops. We'll discuss that in our safety section. Uh, Nick, uh, looking at this data that Christina presented so nicely, uh, does gene therapy look real to you? Um, looking at uh, data from ADVM022 and uh, how this is gonna fit in your practice. Thanks, Arshad. Yeah, I try to not get too excited prematurely, but I am, I am excited about these data. And I do think it's gonna be a paradigm shift as, as has been mentioned a few times already. This has the promise, I mean, I tell patients it has the promise, not the likelihood, but the promise of curing their wet macular degeneration, the possibility at, at the very least. And it probably won't do that for the vast majority of patients. This is going to be sort of a lowest common denominator where enough VEGF is going to be produced by the cells to treat a majority of patients, but certainly not all patients. But just lowering that treatment burden to this degree is very exciting. We'll see how the data pan out and how the safety look in larger phase trials. How it's going to fit into my practice, um, again, it, it's, it's early to say because it depends a lot on, on what the data show. But assuming the data are solid, it could, you know, take over a lot of the, the injections. I mean, you know, and if the safety is, profile is excellent, who wouldn't want to shift over to this? But, but we'll see. No, I agree. I think we have learned before, as Christina mentioned, I think we need to stay optimistic, but at the same time, be careful until we have all the data. Uh, and this is gene therapy. You're going to have some, uh, you know, long-term uh, things happening uh, in terms of, you know, especially here, you have some inflammation, which is manageable, and but we need to learn more about why it's happening and how we can mitigate it. Chris, uh, West Texas, um, does gene therapy resonates with you or you think your patients are going to be excited about one and done treatment essentially in a large number of patients? I mean, who wouldn't? I, I like the word you use. This is a potentially disruptive technology, much as ride sharing was to taxi cabs and, and busing. Uh, I think one of the big questions will be the expense. I'm, I'm absolutely enthusiastic about, as, as Nick said, with, with some caveats, some very early data. Um, but as we've seen with Luxterna, this is a usually pricey medication. Will this be something that's readily available to practitioners like me in smaller cities? Or is this going to be, you know, at least originally or initially, you know, you know confined to kind of areas of higher institutions and, and, or places of higher learning and academic centers? I think that's a really good point, uh, Chris. I hope that it won't be priced as high as Luxterna because... This is a very common disease, uh, you know, as compared to Luxterna was a very targeted population. So I hope uh, this can make a global impact uh, for, for cutting blindness, uh, you know, exciting times. Again, early data looks promising, but we still need to learn a lot. Thanks again to all three of you for great discussions. Um, uh, for the listeners, now we're going to take a short break. And after the break, we'll be back with the case in a minute. Hey everyone, uh, welcome back from the break. Uh, now we're gonna discuss a case with uh, Dr. Nick London. Nick, uh, please present your case. Thank you, Arshad. This is a very interesting patient that I am excited to present and we'll see if my uh, colleagues share in my enthusiasm here and have any great insight for me. So this is a 70-year-old Caucasian man. 
He lives in Yuma, Arizona, which is about four hours from our closest office in uh, San Diego. And we've been treating him every four weeks, roughly, four to six weeks with ILEA. Uh, he has persistent, mild intraretinal fluid, as well as a symptomatic and large pigment epithelial detachment in the left eye with occasional mild subretinal fluid. And medically speaking, he's a pretty healthy guy. He's a very energetic guy. I enjoy seeing him. He has a history of thyroid cancer, but is otherwise healthy. So I, I'm showing historical OCTs really just for the benefit of showing you that, that long duration of treatment where we were treating him about every four weeks. So this goes all the way back to 2019. And you can see on the OCT here, he has this large multi-lobulated pigment epithelial detachment. He does not have intraretinal fluid, but he has a sliver of subretinal fluid here. And he has a normal thickness of his choroid. He's 2040 and he complains and, and can't drive that well because of his metamorphosis. And again, he's driving, he's the primary driver. He comes with his wife, but he's the primary driver. He comes all the way from Yuma, Arizona every month. Um, you can see in some of the scans down below, there's more significant subretinal fluid um, in some of the other scans at the edge of the PED. So he was treated with different medications. On this occasion, ranibizumab. If we go forward, uh, similar a month later, 2040 still, still had metamorphopsia, ranibizumab. And we can really just kind of leaf through these. We can see that he was treated about monthly, treated with ranibizumab on these occasions, had a variable height PED, had development of some intraretinal fluid here, some cystoid changes. And then I decided at one point to try changing the medications. Again, he complained of metamorphopsia. I don't usually chase after PEDs, but in him, he was complaining of it. And so we tried switching to a different drug, in this case, bevacizumab. Didn't have much of an effect, so we switched on the next visit to a flibercept, hoping that we might see a little bit more of an effect there. And didn't really see anything. At this point, he's 2060. This is almost a year ago now. We're sort of moving forward a flibercept. Now we're about a year from, from where we are today, large PED, and it, really an unchanged exam. And he's getting these monthly injections. And so this is the lack of, this shows the lack of improvement that he's had after multiple injections. He had four ranibizumab injections going back to the beginning, which his history goes beyond that. He had one bevacizumab injection with really no change, and he's since been uh, maintained with really no changes on a flibercept. At this point, this is right when um, Viaview was coming out and we decided to initiate treatment with this for him with the hope that we'd get some longer duration of, of activity. So this was in December of 2019, he's 2040, and you can see he still has this persistent multilobulated PED. And this is his first uh, Viaview injection. And one month later, a very impressive result with a near resolution, near complete resolution of that PED with just really the CNBM left there, mild intraretinal fluid and that epiretinal membrane that may account for that. So in January of 2020, he had improved to 2030. And at this point, he had no metamorphopsia and felt that he was doing very well. And he was very excited about his results. So in February, we decided to observe. He had had his three loading doses of Viaview. He had no metamorphopsia at that point. In March, he received his fourth, and you can see a little bit of elevation there of the PED, a de slight decline in vision to 2040. In May, again, a little bit of a uh, um, increase in the PED, mild intraretinal fluid, but his visual acuity was maintained very good at 2025. 
I saw him a week later. This is right when I was sort of monitoring patients a little more closely after B of U injections. So I brought him in a week later. And this is more recently, just a couple of months ago. This is his sixth uh, B of U injection. And you can see again, the PED is getting a little bit larger. And this is when I've got him on the Q8 week uh, maintenance doses after the three loading doses. And then our most, uh, this is the one week follow-up. And then our most recent visit just the other day, we can see again, the PED is getting larger and we're starting to get the appearance of subretinal fluid again, but he still has very good visual acuity. I think a great case, Nick, I think really highlights that there are patients out there who really don't do very well with any of the current agents and, you know, BioView, um, you know, with recent approval clearly fits this unmet need of treatment uh, resistant patients. But obviously, we're going to discuss about safety in the last episode. But I think you did a great job managing the patient. And obviously, uh, the label is QA to 12 weeks. And the Merlin study is ongoing, looking at monthly dosing of, of uh, brolocizumab to see how the safety and efficacy look. But really good case um, uh, from you. Uh, Christina, quick question for you. Do these patients exist in, uh, in your uh, practice? And uh, what are you doing for these patients? Yeah, they definitely do. I think that was a great case, Nick. I mean, I think that I, you know, you rarely see a PD that's that large. That was really impressive. And it was really neat to see how quickly it flattened with, with the injection of rolocizumab. Um, I think PDs are a little tricky. Like Nick said, I don't usually treat them directly unless there's associated fluid. I don't think, I, you know, I don't chase them to, to get them flat necessarily. Uh, I guess one question I would have for you, Nick, is did you do a fluorescein angiogram during the workup at any point? Because it looked mostly serious to me. Yeah, no, he did have an, a fluorescein angiogram at, at baseline, and he had late leakage consistent with an occult membrane. Um, when I see these guys with big PEDs, I always worry about polypoidal and CSR, yeah. but he did not have a pachycoroid. Great. Yeah, no. Um, so yeah, I think that, that I would have taken a very similar approach. I think one of the interesting questions that I uh, see here on the slide is, what about when patients can't get to Q eight week dosing with brolocizumab? They might need something more frequent. And that's what I was alluding to earlier in one of our earlier sections is that's a question that remains to be answered with our longer durability agents. You know, a lot of these are being studied at Q8, Q12, Q16. I thought it was really smart that Tanaya and Lucerne added that Q8 flexing. Uh, because that will add to the label if that drug does eventually move forward. But that still leaves us with the question that there are going to be a certain subset of patients that require more frequent injections than that, similar to the fact that there are some patients who require Q2 week of Flibersoft. And the question will be, what do we do in those cases? Are we going to supplement? Are we going to switch them back off to different medications? And I, I don't know what the answer to those questions are yet, but great case. I think that's great comments, Christina. Uh, Chris, uh, any final comments about PED response with, uh, with uh, BioView being different than other agents? I guess, you know, we learned that uh, it's 11 times more molar dosing than a Flibercep, which is your go-to drug. So uh, does that uh, resonate with you in terms of the efficacy of the drug? Obviously, safety we'll discuss in the last episode. Well, I'm, I'm not certain that I would be a Beovu person first for this case, and Nicholas' management has been excellent and, you know, any and all options on the table with this particular patient. Um, for all of us, I'm sure jumbo PEDs strike fear into our hearts. It's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. You're waiting for that big rip, uh, and I'm always careful to kind of scrutinize the underbelly of the RP on OCTs. If I start to see that shaggy hyperreflectivity, 
I may even pre-treat with a little steroid. Um, but you know, when you see a PED grow like that with such rapidity at visit after visit, it, it, to me, it's almost a ticking time bomb. You're just waiting for that massive bleed. So yeah, these are really challenging cases. Uh, and again, I think the way Nicholas has handled has been outstanding. Yeah, I think Nick and you, you use the drug as a last resort in, in a really uh, difficult patient. And you know, the safety profile is different and we all have patients like this. And I think this really shows that uh, BOV is an option available for patients who are losing vision, have symptoms with uh, frequent uh, injection of the other agents. Just a reminder to our audience, you can check out images from Dr. London's presentation uh, and other cases on itube.net. Uh, um, next time we'll review real world and clinical trial safety data in our last episode, which is gonna be number four. For now, I wanna thank my faculty members uh, for great discussions and I wanna say goodbye to the listeners. 